This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. This is Psychology at Work on Resource Centre. My name is Audrey Raj and with me on the show, as always, is organisational psychologist and CEO of Osaic, Hetal Doshi. Hetal, this is part three of our five-part series on succession planning and we've covered, no, we've already covered uh, what succession planning is, what constitutes poor succession planning. Uh, we also did CEO myths and selection uh, bias last episode as well. What's next? Um, I think this is the most interesting part. We're finally getting to the part where everybody wonders, like, how do we know that we've selected the right CEO? What are the right steps to take mm. in hiring the best person? Really reminds me of, you know, making a decision about the husband or wife of your choice. Because this <laughs> is a hard one that, you know, everyone knows you do it right. And you have, like, a really nice journey going forward. You do it wrong and... It's kind of painful for everyone. So this is really fun, uh, being able to identify the pool uh, that would be, you know, closest to the fit that you're looking out for and then picking the right one so that the journey is exceptional for everyone involved in the next transformation of the organisation. Okay. And I understand the way we find that right match, that perfect partner, um, is going to come through the secrets of great CEO selection. And there are like five <laughs> secrets, right? Oh, is that more? Yeah, I mean, we've called it the five secrets. I, I think it's more a secret because we don't really articulate it well enough. I think that's what mm. we really want, but we don't articulate it. So I think it's like a hidden thing that, um, yeah, is often not easily articulated. They're like, okay, how do we find the right one? But I think there are certain word choices that we should be using in that process. Okay, so yeah. what's the first secret of great CEO selection? Right. So the um, first one is identifying the pivot. I think most companies have something called KPIs, goals. Um, you've got all the commercials that the person needs to deliver. But a pivot is basically the transformation or the change that you, that you require that person to make. Mm. So, you know, I don't think it's about KPI. I really think it's about the transformation. So say, for example, you know, our weight, right? So when we think about weight loss, we don't think about like, losing the weight itself we think about what's the exact transformation that's required so where am i today and who am i going to be by when and mm. therefore who's the best person to take me in that particular direction is it myself is it the community is it a particular coach whatever not so a pivot is basically an x to y and this is really how our brain works exactly like ways or grab uh ways and grab have perfected the understanding of how our brain works you need to understand where you are at and you have to put in the precise location for the driver so, for example, you cannot say KL, you have to say KLCC. And you cannot just say, let's see how it goes because I love the driver. You know, I just love my driver. You can't. You have to be very clear about that. And then you find all the routes to be able to get there. So a pivot is basically understanding where you are right now and where you want to be. And therefore, who's the right person who's going to be taking you there based on that trajectory? Some companies, so, you know, a particular example that went wrong for some companies was in the hiring of, say, for example, IBM was going through a very, very rough time in the 1990s. And they were failing so drastically because they were constantly wondering, like, what is the technology that would differentiate us? What was the technology that would differentiate us? But they understood the pivot really wrongly. It wasn't the technology that there was a problem for IBM. For IBM, it was a business issue, not a technological issue. 
let me give you, um, you know, a very clear example of that. IBM had lots of different types of technologies and it was confusing for customers. Mm. They're like, which one do we use? How do we use? When do we use it? And so IBM, after making many, many decisions about who would be the next best person, they were like, okay, we need someone who can make it very, very clear about that single point of entry from a customer's lens to IBM so that they are not confused. It's not that we have so many things, but we have one thing that we're selling through that particular one thing that we're selling, there are many other options. So the idea was about a perceptional change, but not only a perceptional change, but clarity of form from customer to business point of view. Um, so it was really good uh, what they did at that point uh, by hiring this guy called Gersner at that point in time. Uh, he went from taking IBM from a failing organization that didn't have issues technologically, but they had issues from a business to customer or customer to business point um, of view. And he took it all the way up to like a profit within like uh, the third quarter of the first year that he was in there because he was very, very clear about how he was going to run the business, not sell technology. It's kind of it's cool. Uh, but I think most companies, when I ask them, like, what do you want this person to do? Um, they give me paragraphs rather than a very clear sentence. You know, mm. you tell the driver like where you want to go, right? You can't mumble and talk forever. You just got to be very, very clear about that. And when we work with CEOs, we ask them like, what, what's your measure of success and how are you going to measure it? They can't articulate it. Um, yeah, so pivots have to be super, super clear. Um, and once it's measurable, what gets measured gets done. But most yeah. of the time, unfortunately, it's not. Yeah. So pivots, <laughs> I think, is the most critical part. Like what is the change or the transformation that you need that person to make? And how do you measure that, um, make that measurable? If it's not measurable, it can't be done. Okay. And yeah. what is our second secret? I think the second one is uh, very, very understated because of the types of biases that we have. The second one is called keeping an open mind because we've already made a decision about who our favorites are. We've already decided who are the best leaders rather than who's the right fit. So, this is one of my most favorite examples is um, Japan National Airline. At that point in time, they're going through bankruptcy and stuff, doing really poorly. And what they didn't know uh, was that apart from the pool that they already had, uh, they, so once they identified that pivot, which wasn't about bringing, making the company profit generating, they knew they had to rally their people all together because the people were the people within the company were so demotivated. So their pivot wasn't about revenue generation. The pivot was about how do they really take care of the people, get them motivated all over again and believe in their own brand so that they could, you know, service-oriented culture. Mm. You need people to really believe in the service and the product and stuff like that. So instead of hiring a typical commercial person, they hired like a person who had become a renowned monk. Mm, uh, yeah. I had a business background. It's one of my most favorite stories because the guy is like an old, you know, elderly guy. Sorry, not old, but like elderly, elderly guy, way past retirement age. And this is what we do to like a lot of leaders, right? Like by the time they're 60 years old, we don't need you anymore. But that organization was going through like a spiritual existential crisis. And someone who had, you know, a deep sense of belief in spirituality was required in that time and space to pivot it to get them to at least baseline before they could. Um, generate revenue and what this guy was what, what this guy did um, was that he was able to do both <laughs> you know he was someone Mr. I think Inamori he was someone who was able to get the welfare of everybody and then very quickly after that able to generate profit so these days we look for young ones we look for celebrities we look for people with like you know very good trajectory with profit but it comes back to your 
pivot and keeping a very, very open mind about it. Another favorite story that I have was when Apple was going through a very bad, rough time. Um, yeah, it's hard to believe that Apple was going through a really, really rough time. But this was when, um, at that time, uh, interestingly, they had already gotten rid of Steve Jobs and the organization was plunging, like mm. really, really going like, down the drain. And um, the the uh, owners of the company at that point in time, they were like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And at that point in time, they understood that the pivot was, it wasn't about making money. It was about creating and keeping that sense of loyalty. You know, like people who own Apple products, they're like obsessed, right? Yep, yep. They would just keep buying the next Apple product until, of course, they get sick of having to buy all the extras, you know, complimentary <laughs> stuff that comes the with accessories. it. The accessories. Yeah. So they were like, no, it wasn't about building a business, but it was building about building something that was extremely creative that people would continue to be obsessed about. So it wasn't about making more money. It was about the products that were sexy because that's what Apple was known for at the time. Mm. And even though they had outstood jobs at that point in time, um, and they were hoping Michael Dell, so Dell uh, was a, you know, obviously at that point in time, Dell was doing really well. They were like, hey, maybe Dell can buy us out. And Dell was like, no way, you guys are doing so badly. I don't even want you guys. Mm. Um, so having thought and thought and thought, who would be the most creative person to take over this organization? Um, they were willing to eat the humble pie because what they knew for sure was that Steve Jobs was the only one who had did it back then and was the only one who could bring it back all over again. Even though Steve Jobs had, you know, had failed in a particular period of time with one of his organizations called Next, but he had done something really well with Pixar and that was all about design and aesthetics. And um, Steve Jobs agreed. And uh, he did keep an open mind as well. He agreed to come back in again, but he only agreed on the terms and conditions that they would leave. Right. And yes. because all of them had an open mind or they were open-minded enough about what the real mission was, um, yeah, the, the two of them, that point in time, I think it was um, Ed Woolett and, yeah, I think it was Ed Woolett who also at that point in time said, yeah, okay, fine, I will leave. However, they continued to have a very good relationship as well. Yeah, so keeping an open mind would be critical and eating a humble pie to say that maybe you were wrong. Mm. Um yeah, looking, thinking out of the box, from like monks to people that you threw out of your company to a young fellow or to a, a, an elderly lady, who knows, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, so I think keeping an open mind and keeping it surprising has been one of the things that whenever you hear news of CEOs being selected or prime ministers being selected, like for example in Ukraine, right? Like ex comedian, like mm. how in the world? Um, yeah, so surprising finds are often more uh, exciting than, yeah, he's the known one. Mm. Or she's the normal So it is time for us to take a quick break for some messages. But when we come back, we go through the final three secrets of great CEO selection. Stay tuned. Psychology at Work on Resource Centre will be right back. BFM 89.9. Beating Fickle Mindsets. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. You are listening to Psychology at Work. This is Audrey Raj. It is part three of our five-part series on succession planning with, of course, organizational psychologist and CEO of Osaic, Hetel Doshi. Uh, so, Hetel, uh, we dropped off at the third secret. What is the third mm -hmm. secret? I'd like to combine the third and the fourth one together. Um, mm -hmm. Third and fourth one is about finding the fit, but also planning for imperfection. 
So um, let me give you a, a quick example. Yeah. So recently, when we were supporting a process of selecting the next CEO of an organization, uh, interestingly, what was going on was that there seemed to be no right candidate. Mm-hmm. There seemed to be no right candidate. And every time it reached towards the end, they were like, this person just doesn't seem to have presence. Right. And it, this has happened over and over again in the selection of the CEO of that particular organization from the board. Right? This person doesn't seem to have presence. And so when it comes to finding the right fit, the most critical part about finding the right fit is being very clear about what is your criteria. So if presence is very important, then that should be the first thing, not the last thing, right? Yeah. It should be the first thing. But also, what does presence even mean? Mm. And if it is not quantifiable, it shouldn't be used. And so we actually had to do absolute research on what does presence actually really, really mean? And when we found what it meant, like presence basically is not a word on its own, it's a combination, it's a perfect cocktail of how somebody has confidence, how they show teeth, how teeth. they speak truth. Yeah, teeth, like, you know, like, you know. Grit. A bit yeah. of aggression, a bit of, mm-hmm. you know, aggression, a bit of hunger, a bit, bit of ability to bite where you're, you know, required to bite. Mm. Um, speaking truth, so being absolutely truthful, no, no fluff, and just getting to the soul of somebody else because of the truth of the matter. Um, and also has a burnishing reputation of fan base. So they create a fan base purely because they are a fan of people. So then people become a fan of them as well. And so what we realized was that when it comes to finding the right fit, the first and most important thing would be like, what's your top three things that you want? You cannot have like a never-ending checklist of all the things that you want. And once you find the candidate, it's still not good enough. It's, you know, the world is not made up of people who are not talented. It's just made up of people who don't know what they want. Um, that's my honest opinion. I think the world is made up of a lot of amazing people. So in this particular study that we were supporting the organization with, we we're like, okay, this is what presence means. Bring it right to the front center of it if that's the most important thing. And funny enough was that, you know, after a while, they're like, yeah, presence is actually like number eight. It's not number one. And I'm like, then keep it as number eight. If it's not number one, it's not number one. They're like, no, we need someone who's like, you know, a, a lot more commercially inclined. And that's what we're going to stick with, for example, right? Um, so when it comes to finding the right fit, number one, it's not about the best leader. It's about the best fit for the pivot that's required. You don't make a decision at the end. You make a decision at the start very, very clearly. Uh, a couple of other things when it comes to finding the right fit is having blind assessments. Blind assessments mm. are basically like remove the name, the age, the gender, remove as much as possible the background of the person so that you don't have any form of bias. Uh, in many studies in the past, um, decades ago right they used to find that uh, in orchestras somehow all the musicians were male mm. and they wanted to kind of change that narrative or ask like are women really that poor violinists in this particular study was violinists and so they put like a curtain blind experiment and the evaluators of who would be the next violinist in a particular orchestra uh, they this okay like they put a curtain over there they got the male to play they got the females to play and after doing a blind, more often than not, they ended up choosing a female. But before that, they were always choosing males. So mm-hmm. blind, blind assessments are just basic proof that all human beings are biased. And even Stanford has a very nice implicit asset, uh, test. If you go online, it says, I think it's called the Stanford Implicit, implicit Bias Test. 99% of people who've done that assessment or we've done the assessment with 
um, have had high levels of bias. And even 1% of bias can reduce a, a female's chance of like 50-50% of being selected to 35% chance for a female to be selected. So 1% of bias leads to 15% less likely chance of not your favorite being picked. So blind assessments is just a way of like making sure that you don't have favorites. So you're really, really going for like what's best. Mm. Uh, apparently IQ tests are very important as well in finding the right fit. Uh, IQ tests have been found or rather it's called general mental ability. I'm so glad I won't be a CEO of a big organization because I probably fail my IQ test. <laughs> or do very, very average. Yeah, like no, no, no. I'm not going to talk about my IQ on radio, but yeah, I'm glad that I wouldn't have to sit for that because it's, um, yeah, IQ test isn't about how smart you are. It's it's really about how quick you are able to understand concepts and complexities beyond your regular uh, understanding of it. So it's your speed rather than your, you know, how smart you are mm. um, with, with regards to complex new things that nobody's ever experienced before. Yeah. Mm. And then you've got assessment centers, you've got structured interviews and you've got voting as well so votes have been one of the best ways to get the right person on board not votes from board members but votes from peers and votes from subordinates um, because people like people who they like you know what I mean yeah uh, so finding the right fit is very important and then you've got also imperfection like not everyone's going to be perfect and make sure that if a person is not exactly what you need them to be that the rest of it is actually developable and also are coachable so coaching and being coachable is is key. Um, and setting them up for success is really, really important as well because in a particular research that was done, most CEOs take almost about two years to get comfortable in the seat that they are holding. Mm. But it is also two years that is the time of whether or not we've made a decision about whether you're good enough for the company. Yeah. Uh, so it is a very scary process. Most CEOs would have a lot of things that they are afraid of. The biggest one would be a fear of failure. And so the imperfections of dealing with the fear at that point in time would be something that I think only far-sighted companies would, you know, make sure that that is not, or they mitigate the duration of that experience for that person who's obviously going to be super scared. Uh, most CEOs make a lot of mistakes in the first three months and that just compounds with everybody looking at them and watching them make those mistakes and at the back of their mind, they're just constantly reevaluating whether they're the right one or not. So having somebody there to support them in that process and keep coaching them and training them for long haul will be really, really good. Yeah. So these are two other secrets. Um, and interestingly enough, most CEOs don't have someone that they mm. can have as a sounding board or as a coach. Um, it's just kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. So mm. that brings us to our final secret uh, of great CEO selection. And, and, and what is that, Hito? The last one is um, selecting the right people to make the selection. <laughs> like the, the people who actually look for the leaders. Yeah. Like the leadership so, selection panel. Exactly. The leadership selection panel, right? So imagine like, Audrey, like you're getting married, right? Um, you would want to make sure that, um, yeah, you would want to make sure that it's the right people who are looking out for you um, to be able to get that that person that you want to get married to, right? So mm. it's the right people at the right time for the right job as well. Um, if you remember Auntie Sima, Auntie Sima in, you know, right. that matchmaking, <laughs> matchmaking Netflix video. show, right? Yeah, I can't remember yeah. what it was called, yes. Yeah, she was definitely a great entertainer, but her success rate was like zero, right? <laughs> at the end of the day, it was like, yeah, she was entertaining, everybody was buying into it, but she's just not the right person to 
get the right job done because um, historically it, it may have worked within India, but it didn't seem to be working like at that scale between mm. countries and stuff like that. Uh, what we are finding is that a lot of search leaders or a lot of leaders who are making that uh, decision about who's the next best leader to have in the organization may have done it for so long that they have not been upskilled all over again or that they may not have cleansed of their biases. Um, and so it's very, very difficult for them to wear a new lens. So there's a lot of retraining that is required, a lot of narration and storytelling, evidence-based reasons as to why we need to make sure that the selection process requires upskilled leaders um, mm. Yeah, rather than just, yeah, because you're the leader, so you might be the best person to choose the next person. That's not it. Yeah, just because you're a current leader, it doesn't mean that you're the best person to choose the next leader. Or So upskilling them is very important so that they constantly focus on the pivot uh, because as leaders become more accustomed in their job, they tend to go more in intuition rather than data, evidence-based stuff. So they'll keep going back to who's my favorite rather than who's the best fit. Mm. And that's not okay. Um, and they keep relying back on intuition as well. Um, and also making sure that they go deep in the understanding of candidate strength as well. So um, most board members or whatever, they may not have enough time, but it is critical to make time to deeply understand and be completely not uh, affected by any other job that is going on right you know, on the other side, like no other meetings that they need to have on the other day, or on another day or on another time slot, whatever. So having a clear mind, having right time and space to make those decisions. So a lot of times these decisions are made in or over the weekend, off-site, at a place where they're undisturbed so that they can have conversations with other leaders who are also part of the um, circle that needs to make that particular decision. So uh, upskilling and making sure that our search leaders are in good mind and are not playing favourites so that you know, they're not picking a person to set them up for, for further success. They're picking a person who will really create success for the organization can be very critical. Hmm. Just curious here, Hetel, you know, when these directors or this selection panel, these search leaders sit down to actually make this decision, um, what is the ideal or optimal period? Uh, you know, because you say like sometimes they take time away during the weekends, you know, just to ensure that they're focused at the, on the task. But is that enough? Like, is a weekend enough? Or, you know, in your experience, how long does it take for these search leaders to actually narrow down the list and maybe decide? I think the most, the, the, the longest part or the hardest part isn't the decision that needs to be made by the search leaders, mm. but it is the decision about what is the pivot mm. that is required. And that's the part where if you, you're inconsistent about what you really want in the person and it's not aligned, then you're going to take forever. One weekend away is not going to help. Two weekends away are not going to help because it's not evidence-based, it's opinion-based. Mm -hmm. So I think a decision can be made very, very quickly when the pivot is very clear. What is the transformation that is required? What are the key characteristics that will bring about that transformation? And anything else which is top five, top seven that is required. Then all you need to do is to make sure that you constantly are asking questions based on those competencies and extracting stories or evidence from that person about how they've done that in the past. In that way, when it's evidence-based, you save a lot of time. Um, it's not necessarily the decision that takes a long time. It's the debates and the uh, justification about why my person that I have chosen is better than your person that you have chosen becomes a bit of a you know a egotistical play match of sorts rather than mm. a 
yeah, who's the right person. And also there's like lots of biases, right? Like superiority bias. So when I'm the leader, uh, the, the, if I haven't gone through proper training to remove my biases, nobody's ever going to be good enough because we have superiority bias, right? Yeah. No one's ever going to be good enough for this particular position because I am the best. So I think if you do your pivot right and you do your training right to make sure that the pivot is right and the person selecting is right, I think you probably have a much shorter period. Having said that, hire hard and fire easy. You know? Take your time to get the right person uh, because we've seen so many cases of getting the wrong person um, and with the wrong energy as well. When you get the wrong person or you, it's the right person, but you bring that person with the wrong energy like, or you better do a good job when you're in here, you know, all of us are going to be like, you know, you have 100 days to prove yourself, all of that unnecessary heat. Um, the repercussions of having the wrong CEO is a disaster for the entire organization. Cleaning up the mess can take close to, if a person's been there for one month, cleaning up the mess could take times 10, 10 months to clean it up. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Everything kind of makes sense now. I mean, you've been mentioning the pivot since episode, I mean, from the first part of our uh, succession planning series, and now it finally makes sense for me. So thank you for that, Hetel. Um, so next month, it will be part four of our five-part series. And what will we be focusing on then, Hetel? Um, The next part will be how do you, when you land your job as a CEO, how do you set yourself up for success? Because it can be an extremely daunting, lonely, frightening experience. So what are all the things that you could do before that um, so that the, the ride is a lot more adventurous rather than scary? Uh, yeah, so it will all be about CEO preparedness, readiness, and setting yourself up for success when you get into that position. And this um, would be applicable for anyone who's hoping to become a CEO because you don't get ready then, you get ready way, way, way uh, before. before that. Right. Okay, so that's coming up same time next month. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you, Hetel, for taking the time to share these insights with us. Uh, for more information on OSIC, uh, or if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? As always, you know, every time I, I don't know when we get released uh, out on air, but I do hear from everyone out there, as many as possible on LinkedIn. So I really appreciate it. Um, the gesture of everyone reaching out on LinkedIn as well. So please do keep in touch on LinkedIn. I'm Hetal Doshi, H-E-T-A-L-D-O-S-H-I. I look forward to hearing from you. Right. I've been speaking with Hetal Doshi, organizational psychologist and CEO of OSYC. My name is Audrey Raj and this has been Psychology at Work on Resource Centre, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.